So chapter 3 of the Disciplines of a Godly Man book is about marriage and chapter 4 on uh, fatherhood. This course was originally designed to be a training course for those seeking office. And since those offices are for men, um, uh, deacons and elders in our church, we felt free to use a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man, not godly people, uh, Christians in general. So it's geared for men, much like if you look at the book of Proverbs, it seems to be geared towards men. So not apologizing, just explaining, and I will be a little more brief on these two chapters today, uh, marriage and then fatherhood, since it doesn't apply to everyone in this class. So first, discipline of marriage, chapter three, um, why study marriage? Again, this is from Pastor Hughes, uh, the author of that book, recommended on the front cover. Um, The priority of studying marriage is that marriage vows are uh, supreme above other vows. If, if we're called to take other vows in our life, they are under, are subsumed under marriage vows. It's the most foundational, most important vows that we have. For example, if your marriage calls for it, you must resign as a church officer. This actually happened on Friday in our church, and I was able to speak to, I'll just go ahead and say his name, even though it's live stream, even though it's being recorded, it's public knowledge, Pastor Jim Ferguson, uh, OPC pastor in Green Bay, um, has retired, and the Presbytery approved of his resignation on Friday, and it's because his wife, Laurel, struggles with dementia. And he, he has been caring for her well, but that, combined with the work of a pastor, had become difficult, and so the priority, you see, was his marriage and caring for, for Laurel. So he did that. I was able to personally say to him that, I uphold him and honor him for um, taking that vow seriously and uh, taking that action of retiring now. To say it another way or negatively, the opposite way, to neglect one's wife or spouse for the Lord's work is a sin. So there's many reasons to spend time with our wives. I mean, uh, now moving on from that example, just in general, um, if you think of church officers and those who are married, There are many reasons for church officers to spend time with their wives. In other words, not neglect their marriage because of a calling to be a deacon, elder, or pastor. Um, One reason is that's your wife. So God has joined the two together, and time together is time well spent. Second reason is they're a member of your household. And so one reason you're a deacon or an elder or a pastor is to care for the people of all the households, but especially your own household, so they're a member of your household. It's actually part of your duty as an officer to care for them. It can't be made the excuse to neglect them. Um, they're a member of the church, similarly. Similarly, That would be the third reason. And then uh, the fourth reason is that they're fellow workers. If you host a Bible study in your home, um, you're doing that together. It's not just the church officer. Or if you're bringing a meal as a deacon, let's say you're bringing a meal uh, to a family in need, uh, that would be a teamwork thing you're doing, you and your wife. So being an example is another aspect then of, of marriage. Be an example in all of life, including marriage. If you are to be an officer of the church, you're called to be an example in marriage. So let me state that negatively. A bad marriage disqualifies one for serving the Lord in an office of elder or deacon or pastor. Um, Similarly, a strain on your marriage could hurt or damage God's people serving in that way. So um, we think now in terms of training 
for, looking ahead to the possibility of being called to serve the Lord in, in an office, uh, elder, deacon, or pastor. Your training can be the um, laboratory or environment of your marriage. You could say it this way, that, that your wife is your first church. If you're able to train her, if you're able to pray for her, if you're able to encourage her, um, be an example to her, how you relate to her is kind of like an internship in um, which God shows you how you should relate to his bride, uh, his church. Uh, it's a, a mini example of that. So it's interesting. Our book is called Disciplines of a Godly Man. Disciplines. And so one of our chapters now, one of our topics now is marriage. Did you ever think of marriage as a discipline? It kind of sounds awkward or like we're saying um, you're sent to the principal's office. You have to get married. Ha, ha, ha. Like it's some sort of wrong or punishment. A discipline of marriage just doesn't sound quite right. But if you, if you think of it in the context and flow of this book, you realize it's a spiritual discipline. It's something that forms us, makes us um, be corrected or grow. Disciple is the word within discipline, to train or to uh, grow and change. So if you remember that, then it helps this phrase to make sense, the discipline of, of marriage. There's things we learn in marriage you can't learn any other way. So in a Christian marriage within the church, if you think again about our context of, of officers, a Christian marriage has two people who have the same Lord, they have the same family, um, her family becomes his family, his family becomes her family, even her parents become your parents in that sense, you see that? The same family, not just in your nuclear family in your own household, but same family on both sides. You have the same children, of course, even if they were someone's from a previous marriage, they become yours, you're raising uh, children together or uh, visiting them together. You have the same home, you have the same possessions. I'm a big believer that should have the same budget, not his and hers budget, but one budget for for both. I would uh, recommend that. Same possessions, same money, same ultimate future. If you think in terms of a man and a woman who are both believers, where you're going is to um, heaven, to be with God. And then, very fascinatingly, based on um, Genesis 2.24, you have the same flesh. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding where they have not read these verses, I wonder if they miss something. Because Genesis 2.24 is so foundational for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And don't get me started, because we've got a lot to cover today, but what in the world does it all mean that the two become one flesh? Um, This is part of what the man and wife share. Uh, Same household, family, children, and so on, but the same flesh. There is a knitting together that God has done for the hearts and the lives of those two that uh, God saw fit to use this phrase, one flesh. And of course, it's it's, uh, uh, picked up again in the New Testament. But it, it calls us then to serve on the highest order. Uh, within that, that marriage, to, to have a love that's willing to give of oneself, even to give of oneself unto death, if it were required. Um, if you were willing to die for the other, what else short of that would you not be willing to do? Uh, that comes from Paul's writing in Ephesians 5, classic passage on marriage. Ephesians 5, I'll just pick out verse 25. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Paul goes on to spell it out. And gave himself up for her. So Christ was not just willing to die for his bride. He did. And because that's true, husbands are called to love their wives in a Christ-like manner or literally as Christ loved the church. That is to constantly give oneself up for her. Of course, it goes both ways because wives as Christians are called to be Christ-like as spouses and are willing to give themselves up as well. It's a mutual self um, sacrificing love that is the atmosphere of marriage. So how does that work out? Um, giving her not just all that you have. Sure, you can drive my car. Sure, you can drive my truck. Yeah, you can take my snowmobile out for a spin. Sure. After I train you how to do it, right? Not just stuff that you have, but all that you are. If she wants to sit down and ask you questions... You're open with that and so on. So um, another aspect then is husbands learning to pray for our wives. That your wife is a sinner. I suppose you don't need me to tell you that. Uh, You've made that observation. Nothing new there. But the question here is, what are you doing about it? And one thing we are uh, called to do is to pray for our wives. Um, Here's a quote from our author, Pastor Hughes. Do you realize it is your responsibility to seek your wife's sanctification? And do you accept that responsibility? So sanctifying love, having the effect of making her more holy as she uh, lives with you, goes through life together with you. Put it bluntly, as men love to hear things bluntly so you don't miss it. Is she a better woman because she's married to me? Put it another way, do I sanctify her or hold her back? So self-love is uh, loving her as you love yourself. Um, Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, now verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So self-love, loving her as you love yourself, it flows out of um, the summary that Jesus had of the original uh, Ten Commandments, uh, summarized into two, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it flows out. It's, it's completely biblical. It's a summary of the commands of God to us applied to this one atmosphere of marriage. Love her as you love yourself is a, um, a command from God. So physically care for her cares are, are your cares. Emotionally trying to understand her how she completes you, how she um, complements and assists you uh, through life, being aware of that, communicating about that. And then the social aspect of living with her, having the same energy, time, and creativity um, we put towards our wives as we would toward ourselves. If it's my hobby, I'll have all kinds of interest and time and uh, willing to spend uh, money on it. But if it's her hobby, like, do you really need to do that? Uh, it's It's not loving. So disciplines it takes to love in this way, uh, just as I wrap up here, being committed to her uh, despite one's own feelings, being faithful to her as we kind of outflow from last time's chapter on purity, your eyes, your schedule, your words, your passion, faithful to her, talking and listening to her, really being able to discuss, uh, making time for that, encouraging her, simple courtesies, pleases and thank yous ought never to dry up in a marriage that's... uh, um, founded on Christ, being able to build her up with words, 
uh, deferring to her or foregoing something that you enjoy for um, her preference, continuing to woo her, uh, putting out effort in that, spending time with her as if you were courting. And the bottom line is working at it. It's the discipline of marriage, and I think that um, the call here is clear to continue to put out effort. So giving attention to your marriage uh, with a skill and hard work. Colossians 3.14, above all these things put on love, which uh, binds everything together in perfect harmony. And 1 Corinthians 16.13, be watchful, uh, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So that's on marriage. Flowing out of that is chapter 4 on fatherhood. The fact of fatherhood has endowed uh, fathers with a terrifying power in the lives of sons and daughters because the children have an innate, God-given passion for you as fathers and as mothers. There are strong people who give their best leadership in the marketplace but utterly fail at home. It's scandal after scandal, story after story. Perhaps you have friends. Perhaps you've experienced some of that. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So Pastor Hughes has a few examples of what not to do as fathers. Not being um, critical as a sole characteristic, as one of the most um, dominating characteristics, being critical. Not being over-strict. Of course, they need discipline and and training and uh, no answers, but to be over-strict not being a controlling personality, saying yes to as much as possible, being biblical in what we say no to, not being an irritable person around the home, not being inconsistent, being able to keep uh, the promises that we make. Children will very conveniently remind us of the promises we've made. Um, And then a reminder that in Scripture we can find how uh, favoritism is a sin. If you have multiple children... You really cannot, must not have a favorite. So God has created our children with their hearts turned toward us. That's how it starts out. We are to avoid things that will turn their hearts away from us. It's not just don't mess it up. There's also a lot of positive we're called to do. But things like this, being tender, being part of the discipline and training at home, the idea that the mom um, disciplines the kids is a wrong notion. It's not biblical. Fathers also are participating in the discipline at home, Ephesians 6, 4, as I just read. Um, Being able to confront um, child, to instruct if instruction is needed, to warn when warning is needed, or to restrain if restrain is best. So some suggestions he has here, scheduling regular time alone with each child rather than just big family meeting. Sometimes a child needs personal interaction on their matters. Uh, Beware of saying yes to other things. Every time you say yes at church or in the workplace or in the, uh, the community, it means saying no at some level in our families, making sure it all fits. And John the Baptist was called in Luke 1.17 to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. seems like the children's hearts are already turned towards the fathers, but are the fathers' hearts turned towards their children? When a man truly gives his heart to Christ, it is turned toward his children. So it's something that um, we look for in all levels of officers in the church and everyone else. It's the standard for Christians. So that's it. Marriage and fatherhood are two um, chapters on uh, watching your life today. Moving on to Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, watch your doctrine. In your, if you're in the packet, you'll find this on 
Someone have the page number? Oh, I, didn't, I don't know if I put page numbers in it. On the top, it says chapter 2. Getting to know God better, WCF chapter 2. Yep. So a quick summary and then highlight a few things. As we get to know uh, God better... God is enabling us to live as we were designed to live in growing awe of God. That's basically a summary, a one-sentence summary of this chapter, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 2. If you'd like to look at the actual chapters, page 849 in your hymn book near you. It has three sections, so I'll summarize each. Number one, that God set it up so that we'd keep bumping into him. This is my language, my way of trying to summarize what the first section says that he, he designed us to discover that he exists by making the evidence impossible to escape. You know why? Because you yourself are part of the evidence. Look at your hand, right? Look at the fact that your eye, eyes blink without you thinking about it, or that you breathe ordinarily without having to think about that. So we're part of the evidence of God um, being the creator God. And we live within the evidence, we're surrounded by the evidence, of everyone else, and the light that's coming in through the windows and so on. So God has designed us to seek him, Acts 17, and then uh, to seek him spiritually, since he's a spirit, John 4, 23 and 24. He's seeking worshipers, and so he's seeking us to seek him. So section one. Moving on to section two, that God made us to reflect certain aspects of himself, not others, not other aspects. So there's, there's two types of characteristics of God. Some are reflected in each of us or ought to be. Others cannot possibly be reflected in us. Um, Theologians call this communicable or the incommunicable attributes of God. So I put it this way on your handout. Cannot be reflected in man. And a couple examples. And then the next section, can be reflected in man. So it reflects the, the, the two different kinds. So first we'll cover the cannot be reflected in man. Uh, omnipotent, power to do anything. We can't do that. You, you can't make um, yourself walk on water. Uh, you can't change water to wine, those, those sorts of things. We can't do things beyond our ordinary ability. Um, some people are faster than others. Uh, some people have more endurance physically than others, but no one has omnipotence except for God. Next one is omniscience, which means uh, knowledge of all. Omni means all. Uh, um, it comes from like the word science, uh, the ability to know. So knowing everything, of course, we're very limited. Um, the more we um, age, I think, the more we become aware of that. There's very limited knowledge that we have. We cannot reflect that aspect out. We do have knowledge, and our knowledge comes from God, is derivative from God. But we can't know everything. And then another aspect of God that cannot be reflected in us is that he's eternal and unchangeable. Moving on to the ones that can be reflected in man, being, so we have a being or individual um, persons in existence, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So there remains that gap between God and man. At the um, seminary where I was trained, Westminster, and uh, Philadelphia is another one in California. They, they had a professor years ago, Cornelius Van Til, and he was famous for presenting defense of the Christian faith or apologetics. And one way he would present the philosophy of God on this point 
So you would draw, draw two circles, a big circle and a small circle. And you see the big circle is God, the small circle represents each of us. And there's a distinction there. He called it the creator-creature distinction, that it's permanent. Uh, we, we will live forever, but we don't become the creator, we won't become equal with him. So the creator-creature distinction is reflected here, that gap between God and man. We, we are called to be holy, we're called to be good, we're called to speak the truth. So in some ways we reflect God's image in that way, but there's other ways in which we can't possibly become like God, and we never will. So in the third aspect of God here, um, moving on to the third uh, paragraph that God made us able to know, but not able to fully understand, that God is one God, but three persons. Here we're talking about the Trinity. Of course, you've probably heard before that the word Trinity itself does not appear in the Bible, and yet Father, Son, and Spirit constantly appears, so we gain our doctrine from observing that. And we came up with the word Trinity, um, but that there is one God is not lost. Um, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4, uh, famous in the um, Hebrew synagogues, they'll recite this in, in Hebrew, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And uh, Jesus repeats it in John 10, uh, verse 30, that he and the Father are one. And yet, he's presented as three persons. Like in the Matthew 3 passage that Jesus is in the water, God the Father is in heaven, and what is it that comes upon Jesus? Not a dove, it's the Holy Spirit as a dove. So there's three persons presented even in the baptism of Jesus. Um, one of the blessings that we use for our worship service is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Uh, cites the three persons um, similarly in Acts 2, 32 to 33. We see in the uh, giving of the Holy Spirit, it was um, all three persons presented there. Um, we read that, Acts 2.32, this Jesus, God raised up, so it would be referring to God the Father there, right? This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, so this is God the Son being exalted at the right hand of God the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, see the three, he, the Christ, the Son of God, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So as this Holy Spirit came, it was a gift from the Father to the Son, and then the Son poured out the Holy Spirit. So you see all, all three persons of the Trinity there. Again, um, extremely foundational to our Christian faith. Maybe you've caught my pattern at the end of the pastoral prayer and worship services. If you haven't um, listened for it today. So I think it's important for us to uphold and support our doctrine of the Trinity throughout worship services as we are able. Moving on to chapter 3, chapter on the doctrine or the decree of God, the decree of God, and on this one you should have two pages. First is a normal word, word handout describing each chapter in summary form, but then the second page is a flowchart. I know, I know, some of you love flowcharts, some of you hate them, reminds you of school too much. I thought it was really helpful to chart it out like this rather than me try to explain with just words the structure of this chapter. <clears throat> so if you find this page, I'll be talking about that now. <clears throat> the chapter is about the decree of God. The eternal decree of God is the decision that God makes and when does he make it. So across the top, you should read, and hopefully you can read the words in there, 
the decree is in section 1 of this chapter, that God decided all that has happened. Okay, You think you decided which shirt you're wearing today? Yeah, that was also decreed by God before the foundation of the world. Everything that has happened, okay, you also decided, but it's a dual decision, much like we talked about the writing of the pages of the Bible, our dual authorship, both God and Moses wrote the books in the book of Moses. So God decided everything in section 1. That's defined further in section 2, 3.2, defined as God predestined, foresaw, and foreknew all. I think when people first come into Reformed circles, if they've come from a different church setting, they maybe misunderstand us talking about election as if God was limited in his ability to look down the corridors of time and foresee. Oh no, he's able to look down the corridors of time and foresee. But with regard to election, as we'll get to in a later chapter, he decides that and also foresees that. So then underneath that, the next block on the flowchart is while the decree applies to absolutely everything, we're done with that. You got the concept. So now we're going to talk about how it applies with regard to especially saving of sinners and salvation. So the rest of the chapter takes the big issue of the decree of God and applies it only to salvation. So the question becomes, why is it that some men only and not all men and women are actually saved in the end? Why are there some saved, not some, some not saved? So then we have a breakout in our flowchart, two lines. The one line is the saved line. The other line is the not saved line. So the, the not saved line is saved for later on. It's reserved for later on section 7. In the saved line, we go down these questions. Who is saved? How many are saved? Section 4. Why are they saved? Section 5. How are they saved? Section 6. We jump over to the not saved line for section 7. And then the conclusion, section 8. Where is this knowledge to be used? In other words, um, are there any cautions with regard to this teaching? So now that you have the flow chart, we can go back to our words page and work through the, the teaching of the chapter. So the main point of the chapter is this. We are comforted to know that God has always had the whole world in his hands. I don't mean to be cute there, but it's a really helpful concept. How do you understand decree? It means that God is in charge of absolutely everything that has happened. Um, Obviously, he doesn't have hands. This is picturesque. But that he has always had the whole world in his hands. It didn't start when Jesus came into the world at Christmas. It didn't start when uh, he died on the cross on Good Friday. He always, throughout all of history, since the creation of the world, has had the whole world in his hands down to this level. So the first section of the decree itself, that God predetermined everything. Uh, We see it in all these uh, passages. We are to seek the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to hope in him. We are chosen by him. Ephesians 1.11 is one of those places that supports our doctrine of election. Uh, Matthew 10, when Jesus is speaking, he tells us not to fear, for our Father rules over everything. We know what will happen, uh, who is guilty, from Matthew 18. We, we know God's purpose for Jesus was to die and to rise, uh, described in Acts 2 and Acts 4, when we delight that God is at work in us for his goals. A beautiful passage in Philippians 2, where um, both both what we are called to do and what God is doing are tied together. His um, sovereignty and our responsibility are tied together. And it shows that even the things that we want to do, 
are decreed by God. Not just your external actions like picking a shirt, but even your desires inside are overseen by, by God's decree. Then section two, <clears throat> that uh, now with re- reference to his decree being applied, God has decided, God foresees, and God knows. So passages support this like Matthew 7, bad trees produce uh, bad fruit, good trees produce good fruit. It's the world that he designed, right? Um, there's consequences. If you don't um, weed your garden, the weeds will grow bigger than the stuff that you planted. Um, this is how things work in the world that God has overseen. Unbelievers inevitably do evil. It's what they want to do. Certain people, um, Christians, are made holy. They're declared holy and made holy by God. And God makes us holy by his Spirit's work. We call that sanctification, which we'll get to in a couple of, of chapters. Um, who he saved, section 3, he showed his greatness by choosing who lives and who dies. How many God saved, he already set the number of who will live. Why he saved, to show his great unconditional grace. Not saved because of foreseen faith. Not saved because of their own good works. Not saved by anything in man. So the... uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith authors have set out this teaching as over against what we call Arminian um, processes or thinking about salvation. How, how God saved, it was his initiation, his idea to send the Lord Jesus to die on the cross. It's how the method by which God saved. What about others? It also shows God's great justice. This is that other column of the flow chart. What about the rest? Well, God demonstrates his power and glory <clears throat> in justice, whereas the first column is God demonstrating his power and glory in salvation. And then there's a caution in section 8 that where we teach this is ought to be, ought to be um, carefully thought through, that God has revealed his decree so that we can be comforted, yet sometimes when people hear this, they're not comforted. And so we need to be careful in how we initially start to present this to people, wise in using um, this, this knowledge. It's true, nothing to be ashamed of, and yet, you know, there is, to put it this way, it should be handled with care. It should result in assurance of faith. It should evoke praise, and it will, in God's people. It's a humbling teaching, and so those who don't have that um, teaching in the past need to be shown it from the pages of Scripture itself. Right? Decree. Flowing out of that naturally is the next section, chapter 4 on creation. Basically, celebrate knowing how we got here. God told us how we got here. If you've ever had a philosophy class, the question of origins is always, who are we? How did it all begin? Where did we come from? And uh, we, we have a Christian answer for that here. Not just ourselves, but everything. Uh, where did everything come from? So two, two sections. Section one, we, we celebrate knowing who created us and the world. It's not an open question. It's not something we have to try to find. We know it. God has revealed it to us. It's shown from uh, Scripture that all three persons of the Godhead were involved in the work of of creation, um, those, those verses we see 
of the Spirit, even in the second verse of the Bible. The Spirit was hovering over uh, the chaos and darkness. Um, we celebrate knowing the duration of creation. Uh, was there a time when the world was not? There's a time that precedes the existence of, of the world. Yes. Um, is this created world eternal? No. So as we, as we look you know, far into the future, um, it did not exist in this form previous to the act of creation, nor did its substance even exist eternally, nor will it continue forever. So we know where we came from, we know where we're going. It gives us that set of parameters to understand our, our world and everything in it. Next, we celebrate knowing the relationship of creator to creation. Is the world self-existence? This is an answer to the deists. Uh, deist philosophy where they believe that God created the world and kind of spun it like a top spinning and then took his hands off. And from then till now, the, the world has been spinning like a top. We do not believe that. God is very active and involved in his world. He's the one who causes the sun to rise each day, for example. Um, God governs it particularly and exactly. He also created invisible things, such as gravity, the seasons, the wind, and magnetic uh, forces. Of course, um, our souls, which are, in a way, invisible so we celebrate knowing his relationship to creation. He continues to oversee his world. Then we celebrate knowing the process and the purpose of the creative work. What elements of matter did God use to create the world? None. Use the word of his power, Hebrews 11.3. How long did this process take? It was completed in the space of six days. There's another commentary mentioned there that wasn't on my bibliography recommended on the front page. It's another commentary on the confession by A.A. A. Hodge. It's also a good one. Um, what's the quality level of... Or I'm sorry, I was going to say something on space of six days. Uh, you may have encountered people who believe that the world was created in six 24-hour days. You may have encountered people who believe that the world was created in six days of any much of a longer duration than 24 hours. So there's different views out there in uh, Christianity. I hold the view that it's six 24-hour days, but within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, it's acceptable to have other views as long as you can explain <clears throat> how you deal with those passages in uh, Genesis and Exodus and um, Deuteronomy. Talking about days, how do you defend your position that those days refer to something longer than six uh, 24-hour days? The um, Westminster Confession of Faith, while it says in the space of six days, it's always been interpreted down <clears throat> the last couple hundred years that it is not specifying 24-hour days there. So you, you can um, have a view that's acceptable, uh, become a uh, minister, elder, or deacon in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but not necessarily hold to a 24-hour day in the days of creation. And the Westminster Confession doesn't settle the matter just from this phrase. <clears throat> God has, uh, what is the quality level of the original creation? Um, kind of understated in Genesis 1:31, God said it was very good. Um, was everything created at this high level of workmanship? Yes, God said that all that he made was very good. Why did God create everything for himself and for his own glory? A whole list of verses there. Then, um, 
section two, the last section of this chapter on creation. We celebrate knowing how the creation relates to the acts of re-creation, referring to redemption. How many men did God create from the dust of the earth? One, just Adam. How was Eve created? You know this, from a rib from Adam. So we take this all as historical and true. How did the rest of the human race come into existence? By ordinary childbirth, there's only one exception. Of course, Jesus Christ, his virgin birth we celebrate uh, at Christmas. What is unique about the birth of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, descendant of Adam and Eve in body, yet remained unique as the Son of God? And lastly, we celebrate knowing the design of creation that continues down to us. What does it mean to be created after the image of God? A, having a reasonable and immortal soul. B, being given knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. C, having dominion over the lower creatures. How did God guide Adam? He wrote the law onto his heart. He also gave him special revelation of his will concerning the forbidden tree. Don't eat of that tree. Was Adam created capable of obedience? Yes. Capable of falling? Yes. When God subjected Adam to a special test of obedience, what happened? He told him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he ate, which leads us to our next... Well, actually, we're going to do providence first, but chapter 6 is about that fall more particularly. Okay, that's pretty basic, right? Creation, uh, decree on creation. Providence is a lot more fun. (laughs) You think about it's warm, right, to consider how God uses all of this power of the creator and the one who sets out his decree to fulfill his decree. All of his plans are coming into existence exactly as he said and set out to do. So it's called providence. In the word providence, you see the word provide. That's another way to think of it, that God provides, that he governs, that he causes everything to come into being. We're going to recite Section 5, Lord willing, in our worship service, I'll mention in the sermon today um, the beauty of God's providential care of us. I summarize it this way. We can rest because we know that God controls everything for our advantage and for his glory. Um, you think of the, the favorite verses. Why are they favorite verses? Because of how uh, warm this is and how it, it blesses us to consider. Let's read those, Romans 8. 28, 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the idea of God's sovereign control over our lives, that all things work for good for us, I've heard it said that it means that the entire world is user-friendly for believers then. So section one, we can rest because our God has predetermined everything and he is a good God. It's pretty scary if God has a dark streak and he's predetermining everything about your life, right? If so, the goodness of God comes to the forefront as very important and we can rest because he is. He not only created but is now sustaining all things. His control extends to all his creatures and all their actions of every kind. God's control is always accomplishing his good purposes. Providence 
means his character and his glory are on display, providing for us. And believing in providence results in meaningful, merciful, hopeful outlook. God has a plan. He's carefully and consistently guiding us in that plan. It really puts a lot of fears and concerns to rest. Section 2, we can rest because the same God who created all also controls all. There's not a yin and a yang, right? The, the uh, philosophy comes out of Asia that there's an evil force and a good force that are constantly in battle uh, behind the scenes of everything. That's, that's not true. Um, America's moving in the direction of more and more speaking of karma and those sorts of things. It's, it's not the case. God is in control of everything, and God is a good God. Uh, evil is uh, attacking and doing its best, but it's limited by our God. So nothing and no one is an exception to his providential rule. <clears throat> Some have called, like I think it was Luther who called the devil God's devil because he's limited. He, he can't do anything outside of God's own uh, rule. You see that played out in, in Job chapter 1. Um, God gives the devil the ability to change things in Job's life, but limits him. Say, do this and this, but not this. Um, how could that happen unless God is in control over him? And then still on section 2, God controls creatures consistent with how he made them. Um, so Second Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So the fact that we need to experience it and then have it confirmed is how God guides us in consistency with how he made us. Um, So we're talking about this statement out of um, section 2 of of chapter 5. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably or unchangeably, right? And infallibly, you cannot uh, fail or make a mistake. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Second causes uh, philosophically simply means that things go the way that the lower power guides them as well. If you set the oven for 350, it's probably going to be at 350, right? God has the power to change it and make it 100. God could make it 500 or 5,000. But ordinarily, how life works out is if you're going to set the oven at 350, it's going to be at 350. That's the concept of second causes. And that's what I meant here in this phrase. God controls creatures consistent with how he made them. It's not some world where you never know how your hot your temperature is going to be in your oven. That would be pretty... pretty um, scary and difficult horror movie to live in. But we, we live in a world that's so consistent that people have the freedom to make horror movies and be entertained by them because it can't possibly be that way. So thankful for how God is consistent with how he made us. Section three, we can rest because God uses means, you know, methods, but can also act outside of them. So ordinarily, a axe head dropped into water will float to the bottom of that body of water, whether it be a pond or a puddle. 
but God could, as a prophet directs, puts a straw out where he wants the axe head to come up, reverse gravity, and have it float right where that straw appeared on the top of the water. Ordinarily, axe heads sink, but at any moment, God, if he has a reason for his redemptive purposes, wants an axe head to float, it will float. Or changing water to wine, walking on water, any of the miracles, we see those as God's ability to override how we ordinarily set up things for a purpose for that moment. So God ordinarily chooses to control control not directly, but rather through means. Um, God always can and sometimes does control directly. Section 4, we can rest because God ordered even our sins and overruled them for his good purposes. God does more than permit sinful acts. He directs and controls them to determine his own purposes. Now, if you doubt that, just go right to the cross. And so these evil men put Christ to death, but it was for God's purpose for all of redemption. So if it's true at the biggest case, it's true in lesser cases as well. Uh, What wicked men do, God ordained, restrained, they, they can only go so far, and overruled. They thought they were getting away with it. They thought they were doing bad things, but God accomplishes his good goals instead. So the sinfulness of the actions is only from the sinner. God in no case becomes the author of sin, that, that God didn't generate this or um, is responsible for the wrongs that we do. What wicked men do, God forbids them to do, but they do it anyway. He discourages them from doing it, but they do it anyway, and he punishes them for doing it after they do it. So we're clear on that. And then section five, we can rest because God is up to something good chastising us, humbling us, making us rely more on him, and making us more watchful. So God's providence is one connected system of him governing creation, but there are also subordinate systems at work. He's governing all of creation, but then he's also punishing the wicked. He's also building up his church. He's also protecting his people. So all these things are at work at the same time. He governs things, governs right and wrong for humans, cares for his church. Each of these systems is subordinate to the next one. Section 6, we can rest because God draws those he is drawing with regard to salvation, redemption, the work of missionaries and, and his church expanding. He oversees mankind and restrains evil in every single human being. If God didn't restrain evil, I think within the next hour everybody would be dead. We're just so murderous, so selfish. Uh, we would break the commandments, and one of them is not to, to murder. Um, just think of how it, it would play out, right? You, you murdered my friend, now I'm going to murder you, and then his friend comes and, mur- and it just would rapidly un- unravel. So um, section six, we can rest, and then section seven, our last one. We rest because God has special plans to take care of his church. Providence of God pays close attention to rescuing and redeeming his people. So while he cares for the whole world, it's like he has a pet, not a pet, but you know the, the special attention given to his, his church. This is part of what's comforting about the providence of God for believers. i read that section out. As uh, Section 7, as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things 
to the good thereof. So all things uh, work out for the good of those who love God, as we read earlier, Romans 8. And all of God's purposes have been accomplished for his people in uh, Christ Jesus. So there are times when God restrains uh, and withdraws uh, the work of the Spirit and leaves men in unrestrained con- uh, lack of control of their lusts and even under the power of Satan's devices. But God does that to chastise or to humble or to make them more watchful against future occasions of sin. Um, under the same means that God uses to soften some, he hardens others. Right? Why, why would some people hear the same sermon and uh, one is built up in the faith, some are even converted, and others or even um, more hardened and turned away from God, his word, and his church. It becomes the savor of death to some, the savor of life uh, to others. Under those auspices, God especially cares for his people and is constantly building us up in faith. Very um, comforting, heartwarming doctrine. A favorite of many. I'm going to stop there. I can't um, cover chapter 6 